What happens when you actually connect to Kafka? Normally it just works and you're worried about other things in your code. But what happens when, say, there are too many open connections? This brings us to the subject of connection throttling, KIP 402, and really just what's going on in Kafka's network layer generally. We'll talk about that today with core Kafka engineer and streaming audio podcast host, Gwen Shapira, on this episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Welcome back, everyone. I am delighted to be joined today in the virtual studio by my own podcast co-host, Gwen Shapira. Gwen, welcome to the show. Tim, always a pleasure talking to you. Yes. Uh, normally, we are hosting different segments on here. I'm interviewing people here, and you're answering questions on uh, Ask Confluent. But I think it's a lot of fun to be here together, and especially talking about this topic, because this is I know this is one of those subjects where there's just a whole lot of interesting details to talk about. I don't know any of them. You know a lot of them. And we're just going to dig in. So KIP 402. Uh, this is a KIP that was included in Apache Kafka 2.3, yes? Yes. Yes. Now, KIP stands for Kafka Improvement Proposal. And it's like a part of the process that the community uses to collaborate around Kafka development when somebody has like a, a moderately big thing to do that's not just a JIRA, but they actually have to like lay out a plan for. Is that a fair way to describe it, Kip? It's not always big. That can be misleading because people say, oh, my change is so tiny. Why do I need a Kip? It's everything that is user facing, like everything that a user will notice, a change to the configuration. Even if it's a tiny change to configuration, users will want to kind of have a voice around, is it a good change or a bad change? So anything that really is noticeable, not just like, hey, I improved performance or I fixed a bug, uh, changes in behavior, changes in API, we let the community have a vote and have a say. So we have slightly heavier process around that. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's a much tighter, much tighter explanation. So um, KIP 402 was a KIP, one of many KIPs included in AK. 2.3, which was released just a couple months before the time of this recording. And it was, it had to do with connection throttling. Now, like I said, I want to dig into the whole kind of network stack and what's going on everywhere, but let's start with this. What was the problem that the KIP was addressing and how did it address it? So actually the KIP began at a totally different point, like in almost like you say, connection throttling, and it is true eventually, but the problem that the KIP describes like in the title it's actually to improve fairness in how we process connections. And the problem was basically if you have a lot of, if you don't have a lot of connections, we don't care. But if you have a lot of them, um, we only have that many threads, we only have that much memory, we only have that much CPU. So who do we process first? And it used to be that we would process all the arriving connections first. So if you had like a big spike in how many connections arrived to Kafka, you would actually let existing connections kind of languish without response for really long amount of time because all the threads would be super busy servicing new connections and forgetting about connections that already exist. And this was especially a big problem because if a connection doesn't get serviced for long enough, 
it disconnects, right? And then it suddenly becomes a new connection because it tries to reconnect. It kind of gets uh-huh. a timeout yes. and then like, okay, let's try again. And you get a new connection. Uh, so it actually it's a problem that makes it safe. Once you get into the situation, it's really, really hard to come out of it because you just dig yourself deeper and deeper, basically. So, yeah, that's positive feedback. You're, you're <laughs> yeah. getting more of the thing that was hurting you. Yes, exactly. You basically kind of keep hurting yourself kind of thing. So by implication, uh, as an internal, as a, as a detail of the internals, there is a single thread pool that's servicing both requests for new connections and data indications on existing connections. Is that to right? get even a tiny bit geekier on that, there is actually like three requ- uh, pools of threads busy servicing connections. So one of them is what we call acceptor thread. Typically, you'll have just one of them. And this basically just like when you have open a connection, the first thing that happens is an operating system socket. And someone just needs to tell the operating system, hey, this connection has been accepted. And you kind of add its handler to the list of handlers that Kafka will manage. Right. There's literally literally like a call to the accept method in the TLI API down there and all that. That's pretty much all we do. Right. And, (laughs) And then remember the keys. So we'll have a handle to get back to it later. Yes, and then we have, yeah, exactly. Then we have the processor threads. And if you wonder how many of them, they're also called network threads. Uh, so if you look at the network, how percent idle of network threads is something very popular to monitor. And um, if it's also called the network threads when you try to tune how many of them exist. Those are basically our processors. And they pick up requests from, like, not just requests, pick up new data from those connections, uh, do very minimal processing on it um, usually, although sometimes they do slightly more. And you basically take, create a Kafka request and put it on the Kafka request queue. And then we have the request handlers, which is the other big uh, pool of threads that picks things up from the request queue, actually respond to them. So if it's a produce request, actually write it, to the disk, if it's a consumer request, actually read stuff from the disk, and this, and then basically puts a response on the response queue where the same processor threads also supposed to pick it up and send the answer back. So you kind of have those two pools basically going around this big request and response queue, circling requests and responses. Got it. But the processor queue or the so-called network threads are taking inbound and outbound. Activity. Yes, I mean, that's just how you talk to the network. Yes, and there's some stuff that the processor threads do uh, that takes more time than other stuff. Uh, so, for example, if you do, if you have all the consumers and you have to do conversion of the protocol, also happens on the network side, which is arguably a bad thing because they have other stuff to do. But just so you know, if you see them very busy, then they may be busy doing that. Doing something like that. Okay, I want to yeah. come back to that in a little bit. So. KIP402 specifically was about contention for the network threads or the, yeah, the processor queue? Yeah, exactly. Got it. And, and then um, also a tiny bit about brokers accidentally running out of memory with, from too many connections. We added, ooh, ooh, we snuck okay. that in to the same KIP as well. Okay. Uh, I want to ask about that in a minute. I just want to make sure I understood uh, right, that, that I restate this correctly. Um, it, it doesn't it's, it's not about changing the size, the network thread pool or anything. That's just a thing you do if you're operating your own cluster. That's a thing you have to fuss over. Uh, but the KIP specifically was about prioritizing data 
events on that queue rather than new connection uh, entries. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So if there is a connection storm, just due to whatever pathology going on out in the cluster, um, it's like breaking that positive feedback loop. You don't exactly. So the new behavior would basically be: we'll pick the fifty new connections, handle them, and then go back to handle existing connections. And then when we finish with existing connections, we'll go back to all the waiting connections, pick another 50, and uh, handle them as well. So we kind of slow down the rate at which we accept those, not exactly accept, but process those new connections. Yeah, because it does work on at least. Better. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, so, and actually that's, that's not that hard to understand. What's the broker thing? What's going on with uh, the broker out of memory error that you snuck into the KIP? Um, yeah, so basically when we worked about improving fairness, we were like, okay, so the thing that is really important to prioritize is obviously connections between brokers because that's the controller, that's the replication. We absolutely have to protect that. And then we also want to basically allow people to limit how many connections they can get for each listener. And that's kind of as a way to prioritize some listeners maybe over others. And then we're like, well, but what if all the listeners process have the correct number of connections, but the broker itself kind of reached the broker limit? We discovered that each SSL connections take 48 kilobytes of buffers in order to be an SSL connection, just to do ssl stuff. Oh. And obviously, 48 kilobytes means that you only have that much space available for that many connections that the broker can handle before running out of memory. So you do, you want to set a limit, no matter what you do, no matter what else you configure, no more than that many connections over the entire broker. And once you have this size, you can start off prioritizing things that talk to the broker. So we prioritize, okay, out of this, we obviously prioritize everything that is internal, and then we prioritize uh, this uh, listen, we allow this many from this listener, that many from the other listener, and obviously prioritize pre-existing connections over total any ones. Got it. Okay. Yeah, we slightly so went into a rabbit hole, I guess. <laughs> no, but it's a good rabbit hole. And that's a new configuration parameter at the broker level, the total number of connections? Yeah, so you can you have the total number of connections uh, on the broker level. That's max.connections. Uh-huh. And then that's always it, been there. No, that's a new one. Oh, that's, part that's of new. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What you know, the funny thing is two months ago, I was summarizing all of this in a video and clearly already I forget. I'm not feigning ignorance on some of these things. I just forget them. So anyway, <laughs> I, I, connections I think you're faking all the ignorance. You, you knew everything already. <laughs> Nope. Uh, so anyway, Max Connections is a new thing. Max that's, Connections that's, that's... new, and you might have confused it. The old thing was that we had Max Connections per IP. So, yeah. And that yeah. was for a totally different reason. Some developers are basically writing code that has bugs in it and leaking connections. And you kind of know how many connections would a reasonable application open. Like it would open 5, 10, but probably not 5,000. Uh, so you could set a limit there. Uh, but that doesn't, because you have a lot of applications connecting from all those different IPs, it doesn't really help you protect the broker itself. So max.connections is a hard limit. This is what the broker can do given how many resources each connection takes. Got it. And Got it. Which, 
Yeah. Go now, go ahead. And then you can also, for each listener, when you configure the listener, you can also add listener name, listener.listenername.maxconnections, and that way control the number of maximum connections for this listener. And Got it. And listener there, uh, if anybody doesn't know what that is, um, I'm going to ask. An That's endpoint. basically equivalent to an endpoint, like a TLI, the, the socket interface listener, IP and port. Sort yeah, of exactly. Thing, right? It's IP yeah. port and Kafka adds the security protocol. So gotcha. Yeah. And I do, I do want to say, um, we'll need to include a link in the show notes. If you don't, if you're listening and you don't know the socket API, number one, uh, you are completely forgiven for that. Cause if you haven't written a code, written code against it, you have absolutely no reason to know it. Um, but, uh, you want to Google, uh, we'll have a good link for you, but if you just want to stop and Google right now, um, you know, like socket API or transport layer interface API or something like that. There's just a few basic kind of, you don't really call them objects, but you know, objects and interactions in that API that are Gwen and I are sort of taking for granted this conversation and yeah. they're good to know anyway. So I found it's a good consequence. As I was ramping up new engineers on our team recently, is that if you know about NIO, like the async IO library in Java, it's uh -huh. really, really easy to understand how the Kafka networking layer works because it's very standard NIO type work. And if you've never used NIO and async networking libraries before, it's really, really, really confusing. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like if you haven't done it before, you just haven't. And I mean, there's you don't have to know the internals of Kafka in order to use it, right? I mean, that's right. given. As a, yeah, correct. As a fun fact, completely unrelated to the Kafka networking stack and KIP402, the first, I'm just hesitating here because I, I want to make sure what I'm saying is true. As I recall, the first code I wrote for money, which would have been in 1992, January of 1992, was socket code on uh, a Sun workstation. Oh, that's fantastic. It and was it async IO existed already? I'm sorry if I sound like, uh, you know, Grandpa, did you have uh, telephone right, back right. in the day? <laughs> not I'm, not I'm really that cool. I recall. I don't recall anything <laughs> being async about that. There was, there was, there were a number of blocking calls and you didn't get callbacks or anything. It was all, it was all C and, um, that's fascinating. Wow, doing that async, doing async. I'm sure there are those APIs exist now, but doing that C would just be dangerous. Anyway, um, there is nice libraries these days. I mean, there was yeah, a nice one yeah. from Facebook, and yeah. Anyway, so that's that's, that's, um, <laughs> that's that's why all this this stuff is somewhat near to my heart. Uh, yes. Uh, all right. So um, that I mean, those are the two main components of Kip four hundred two. What else? Uh, what else goes on? Like maybe just walk us through um, from, wait a second. And these, these connections are inter-broker. This isn't just client to uh, broker, but this is broker to broker that this yeah, kit deals with, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's why we had to be incredibly careful about basically how we implement it. And remember that when you configure Kafka, you can configure specific listener to act on the interbroker protocol. And we, if you're going to use the max connections uh, limit for the broker, we mm -hmm. highly recommend to tell Kafka exactly which listener is going to be used 
for the inter-broker protocol because it will get prioritized. And it's super important to prioritize it because imagine that clients could stop brokers from replicating, could stop controllers from doing leader elections, could stop controllers from creating new uh, topics or deleting existing topics. Like it can go south in so many ways. Yes, all yeah. of those are bad. Yes, uh, that's basically why we added the pair listener controls at the same time where we added the total limit per broker because we were kind of freaking out over, well, we have those max connections, which means that if we reach it, we may need to actually forcibly close some connections to get down to a reasonable memory size. And if we do that, how do we know not to kill connections that are actually really, really important because it's a controller? So this is how we do it. We look at what listener is used for the interbroker protocol. So super important. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what other, uh, you know, while you're in this part of the stack, what are some other things that tend to receive a lot of attention or, uh, you know, things, things that can, can potentially be problems in the network stack? Uh, yeah, the network stack normally doesn't do tons of problems. I think the big ones that tend to surprise people is that it does conversion, which is a pretty big deal. Yes, and you had mentioned that. That was that was a thing that in the handoff between processor and request, uh, or network threads and request handlers, there's conversion in there. Yeah, so except conversion, if you have clients that uh, are old, the broker will need, especially consumers that are old, the brokers will basically need to convert the data that is on disk to data that the client will understand. And this is done on the network thread for a reason that I'll get to in a second. And the problem there is that it's time consuming in ways that you don't always plan for and you don't always know, like you don't have a lot of control over when will an old client connect. Uh, so you may need, if you see that the, you have this uh, monitor for how much, how busy the network thread is. So it's like network thread, idle time, something along those lines. So you want to keep an eye on it since it doesn't become overly busy and maybe add a few more threads if needed, or maybe disconnect a few old clients if needed, depending on right. how much control you have. And the reason that this conversion happens on the network thread is that because of the zero copy optimization in Kafka, where we try to read from memory directly to the network sockets without really going through any of the Java stack, without really generating, copying any kind of memory, it should be incredibly, incredibly fast. Um, because of that, the networks, we basically made the network thread do all the fetching buffers work. And that means that it will may do conversion if needed. Uh, but it also means that if you have to read from disk, like if we you read actually all data, it can also be the network thread that is actually reading from disk. And I discovered that in a really surprising way where we had a case where the disk went, you know how sometimes disks go bad, but not quite bad enough. So it doesn't really it, die. It just exactly. hangs everything that tries to touch it. Uh, right. So we're kind of like, why are all our network threads hanging? And the only way to catch that there is even a problem, other than all the people with the clients complaining, was to see that the network thread idle time was basically zero. They had zero idle times. They were all stuck there. 
and then yeah basically the yeah what happened was that the disk went uh, wrong everything hanged the network threads were hanging waiting for it but the broker looked okay other than the network threads everything else seemed in progress so we got log messages and the only thing we really couldn't do was produce and consume so it took us more than we expected to figure out what went wrong because the logs had no when you hang you write no errors to the log that's a problem if you wrote errors we'd know that we have issues so that, that was kind of surprising but now we know that Network threads read from disk, and if the disks hang, you may they may hang with them. Exactly, bad things may happen, and so that that is that strikes me as the kind of thing that none of the committers or just developers inside the Kafka code it sounds like the kind of thing that nobody loves, right? You know, yep, we have to do this, and there are good reasons why, and it's kind of terrible, but. It's the best you can do given what the constraints are. I have to admit that the network stack itself is currently seen as kind of like, well, we did the best with what we had at the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right. it like, and we regret it a bit more as time progresses. So basically, at the time, people keep asking me, why don't you use Netty? And the reason is yeah. that Netty is the obvious choice now. Like if you write a distributed system and you need to have async IO, please use Netty. But back at the time, it wasn't an obvious choice. Like I think it right. existed, but it wasn't like a oh, clear. Oh, it was so that, new. Exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 It was like a super hipster thing. And, exactly. Uh, so we were like, you know, it, it could have been good, but we were also like, we could write something better ourselves kind of thing. So may, right. maybe a tiny bit of hubris have sneaked, snuck in there. Uh, but obviously, Netty kept getting better, and Kafka had better things to do than improve the network stack. So, like when we had to add uh, SSL, I think Netty added SSL in a nicer way. And like we haven't kept up with every single improvement. So I think we don't like there is a lot of new SSL features that we don't do as well as Netty does. So we're kind of like every once in a while, like are we going to replace everything with Netty? Mm, too much work. We don't. But yeah. Anyway. Right. Right. That you that kind of get back like, the decisions you came up with. Exactly. That sounds like it'd be major surgery, and maybe someday it'll happen. I mean, exactly. Zookeeper is happening, and people well, have been talking about yeah, that for years. I so. know, right? If Zookeeper is happening, everything would happen. <laughs> <laughs> Although, arguably, the network stack is even more fundamental than uh, the you know the consistency. I wouldn't protocol. want to have to make a vote. Yeah, they're both very much fundamental. And again, the network stack is kind of integrated all the way down to the storage, as I write, just explained. So it's definitely uh -huh. not going to be very easy surgery. Right. Uh, right. But um, yeah, I'm thinking, I keep thinking that there must be like a Greek name for like hubris leading you to make a decision that you regret for the rest of <laughs> your life, probably yes. short and painful life kind of thing. Right. <laughs> it's not. It's not quite an Icarus and Daedalus thing. Uh, I mean, that would be like if you built this big elaborate network stack because Netty wasn't good enough. You know, instead you made your own modest little thing. And yeah. honestly, at the time, I, 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 you can't Monday morning quarterback that decision. It's at the time yes. that on the, other the original hand, decision that's was what being made. Engineering is about going, looking back, and criticizing every single decision you ever made in your entire life. <laughs> But as an outsider to the code base, I would say you really ought to give yourself a break on that because it, it was not an obvious decision at the time. It is now, but yeah. in 2010, yeah. um, no, I, I no one should have used Netty for anything. 
Yeah, I think the big decision point, and that was one that I was slightly more involved in, was when we added security, we actually made huge changes to the network stack. And it, that was in 2015. And we, yeah, I okay. think we could have chosen to use that yeah, <laughs> at that point. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, enough. again, it looks simple. And then you, it's like, yeah, no, we don't need to do this big surgery. It's just a small change. But they keep accumulating. So, yeah. Right, right. That's a that's a fun kip to look forward to for the future. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, one of the things that I was kind of thinking about is that you know how in job interviews, definitely in um, engineering and probably like in operations as well, people always ask like, hey, what happens when you type in google.com in your browser and please describe everything that the packet goes through and the DNS and the, how the server responds, all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever asks us about Kafka. Like you send a producer request, please tell me everything that happens or you open, a, you start a producer, What what's going on there? I'm, I think that'll I'm be a fantastic interview question. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, it, it, it was going to get asked if you didn't bring it up. So uh, <laughs> walk us through. Um, I'm, a, I'm a client and I've got a message and I want to produce it. Yeah, I think and can I start it at send? Uh, so you have to tell, yeah, I think you could, right? Because you create the producer, but this only happens on the client side. And then the send actually contains the topic and the key and the value, or at least the value. Mm-hmm. And then you send it. And at this point, if you already have a connection, it's easier. If you don't, you actually have to kind of contact one of the bootstrap brokers to find out the topics that I want to produce to, where does it exist and what partitions does it have and which partitions are online. So you have to do this one round for the metadata. And that kind of, you can say that this kind of establishes a connection, although like Kafka doesn't have that much in a way of statefulness. So, but if you did SSLs and this is when the connection will get established, like that's when all the handshakes happen and so on. And then the, the next thing would actually be the producer trying to do an actual send to the specific broker that has the partition that the record is on. And I think I kind of already talked a bit about how it goes on the network stack. That the first thing is that when you open the connection, it goes through the acceptor. That will happen bef- is if you keep talking to the same broker where you send the metadata. I think it will actually be on the same connection. Otherwise, you'll need a new connection to the new brokers that you're going to talk to. Okay. Um, I want to stop you mm-hmm. Stop you there. Let's um, give me a better description of the, you said sending the metadata. Walk me through that again. So I got to send and there's topic and key, maybe key, topic, key, and value. And the client needs to make sure it has a connection to the relevant broker. And so if it, if it doesn't know that topic, it goes and asks somebody in the bootstrap list. Yeah, right? exactly. It goes and asks the bootstrap list, give me metadata for the cluster and also for this topic because I'm specifically interested in this topic. So the cluster metadata really means uh, what brokers are there, right? A cluster metadata right. is which brokers exist, yeah. Yeah, which brokers exist. And, and the, then, the endpoints, so that's the important part. Like, yeah, where yes, should yes, I yes, talk yes. to them? <laughs> exactly. So if I if my next step was to open a connection, where would it go? Exactly. And then 
Then there's a, a, requ- a metadata request about the topic, which is what partitions, and the answer has to be what partitions are there and are they online and where are the leaders? And right? that usually goes in the same request. So you send okay. one request and you get both the list of brokers and the endpoints. And if you ask about a specific topic, you'll also get the list of partitions and all their leaders. Okay, so, that's nice. And so at that point, the the client is caching all this stuff. So this is state in the client at this point. Yes. Yep, exactly. Okay. And it will refresh by default every 10 seconds, I think, just in case. Oh, really? Okay, around. so if I haven't spoken to that topic in 10 seconds, I will get new metadata on it. Yes, because we may okay. have moved stuff around. Exactly, something might have failed. Yeah. Uh, all right, so that means then the next step is um, I, I know where the part- what partition uh, this message is going to go to. I know uh, where the leader is, and I want to know do I have a connection? Is there a connection in the connection pool to that broker? Exactly. And if there isn't, and that's a good time to open one. That would be an excellent time. To open one. <laughs> and that is where we started this conversation. Exactly. That's the event. We, exactly. we started uh, in, in medias race, as they say, in, in the middle of the story uh, with dealing with all these connections. Well, that's where they come in, at least from clients. Yes, Exactly. And right. if the broker is over the maximum, that's where you basically keep waiting for someone to accept your connection. Maybe forever. Who knows? Okay. No, not so forever. I'm kidding. We'll get to you eventually. There'll be a timeout, yeah. and you'll get an exception, and you will duly print that stack trace to the browser window. I mean, you will go through responsible error handling of that exception on the client side. Yes. Uh, but yeah. note that this, if you do it, if you get an error before we accepted your connection, it's probably some kind of a generic network error. No, the consu- the producer will get a generic network error. You should get a responsible uh, Kafka producer error. So I, I hope it. we don't actually expose those network bits to users, but right. we really, we really right. don't. Because what you know, no one would know what to do with them. I guess is is the thing. Right. Okay, so uh, we are now at the point, again, that connection request propagates through the acceptor thread, network thread, request handler, uh, thread pool, and uh, now the broker, pardon me, the client has a connection to the broker. And so what happens next? It's like time for data to move, right? Yeah, so basically the producer will send kind of a batch of messages. Um, it could be a batch of one, but hopefully you are a responsible producer and you produce larger batches. Uh, producers are generally faster if you, we compress batches pretty well. So you get faster if you have larger batches. So right. you send a batch of messages and then the connection already exists. So you don't actually have to go through acceptor and all that. A processor will pick up the bytes from the socket, a kind of do some light parsing, turn it into an object and put that on the request request queue. And that's where a request handler picks it up and says, okay, I'm a request handler. Uh, I'm going to, I got a produce request. I know what to do. I'm writing it to the leader who is right here because you've made sure it's a leader before you even open the connection. So I'm just going to write it to the disk here and now. And now that I successfully wrote bits to disk, it's not really that much disk. It could probably be the page cache. But when I'm done writing it to my, what looks to be like a disk. As far uh, as I know, it's the disk. I exactly. know the operating system is it, telling it all kinds well of comforting, comforting lies about <laughs> exactly. what this disk thing is. But 
I tried. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we didn't try very hard because we didn't actually force a flush, but we tried a bit. So well, you want you want performance. So, yeah. Right, you, exactly. Right. So yeah. we wrote those to what may or may not be a disk. We are done writing. Can we send a response back? And the answer is it depends. If you say that you want a response back just when the leader got the message, then we can send your response back. But if you say something like X equals all and min ISR equals two, we actually have to wait for other brokers to say that they got it too. Uh, yes. So and we cannot put you in a purgatory. But that and metadata is in the request, the, the, the data, the produce exactly. request that came exactly. to the broker. Yeah, yeah because okay. you configure it in the producer. Right. So yeah, we we get we see that in the request, and then we know whether we need to wait. If you wait, we put you in a purgatory where we occasionally check whether or not other brokers got the message. And after hopefully a short while, we hear that yeah, everyone got it, and we can send you a successful send uh, produce response, which the request handler will put on the response queue. And the right. process thread will pick up from the response queue and send to the client over the network, over the connection that is hopefully still open. If it took really long amount of time to do it and the connection timed out, we will write something around, oh my God, the connection is not around anymore. Right, right. And that'll that'll get logged basically. So yeah, because um, yeah, there's nothing, by definition, nothing on the network you can do. Yes. Now, um, I I'm having fun and I hope Everybody who's listening is having fun too. So, but I have some more questions to ask. At the point where, uh, if if X equals all and say min ISR is two, um, there is a request handler that understands that. That first understands that the request handler wrote data to disk, and the operating system call said, "Yeah, sure, that's on disk. You can move on." And we said, "Good, we trust you." And uh, and obviously, I'm joking, but that that works pretty well. And everybody everybody who writes computer programs that write things to disk does it that way. Yeah. But it has to it has to wait for the replicas. And if I understand replication correctly, the replicas are occasionally reaching out to their leaders to say, "Hey, do you have any goods for me?" Right. Exactly. That's how we really know that. That's how the leader knows when the replicas got this message, and we can send a response because the replicas just ask for this message, and we just send them this message. So clearly, they have it, and now we can send a response. So there is this request handler. Is the thread blocked on that? Like what? what no, what's no, going on? No, on the no, no. That's why we have purgatory. We try to not block anything at all ever. So we basically oh, okay. put you in a third queue, and uh, so and then occasionally check what's up with that. Got it. Okay. So the request handler thread puts the request in a purgatory queue, and then the th the request handler thread is returned to the pool. Like it's got new work to do. Exactly. And we know got exactly it. how busy it is because we measure it. So okay. Yeah. If it's kind of going around like crazy, unable, like you see the queue growing and it's unable to keep up, you probably need a few more threads. And in bad cases, maybe a few more machines. Uh, right, right. Maybe it's actually uh, undersized cluster. Okay, so that and that purgatory is size. Of the purgatory queue is visible. I assume it's everything is. Yes. Instrumented. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because it sounded watch, awful. It's kind of like the end-to-end -end time because there is so many queues to watch 
and they kind of interacted weird ways and like three different thread pools, three different uh, queues, all this kind of thing. Sometimes the best thing to watch to know if your broker is overloaded is just how long does it actually take to process requests. Right, right. You know, <laughs> stop, stop fussing with the individual queues and just like look at end-to-end latency. Um, and okay, because for, for a moment there, it sounded terrible that there were these request handler threads that were just kind of chilling, waiting for replication to happen. But I bet fact, you were not. like, oh my God, I found the biggest Kafka bug. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't really think that, but it, it didn't sound right. So good. Um, how often do, uh, typically, how often is a follower polling its leader? Huh, that's a very good question. I actually don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Okay. I mean, um, it has to be at least twice a second, uh, but uh, I don't know how often it usually gets. Right. I but I mean, on a busy cluster, it can be really, really often. It seems like it would be super often because that the, the overall latency of a produce request on a... Um, you know, with X equals all is, is going to be governed by that, right? You're going to be proportional to that, that polling time. Yeah. On the other hand, if they, I think that if you have nothing to, to give them, they will basically kind of wait for it. So I think the way I remember it, and you're now kind of probing at the extent of my knowledge on how this part of the code works. I think that the replica fetchers act like normal consumers. And the way normal huh. consumers is like they send a fetch request and then it also waits in its own projectory until there is something to fetch. So they don't just keep asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Kind of thing. They're not like the little kids on the back of the car. Right. Uh, they ask once and then you're kind of quiet, quiet, quiet until you know that you have something and then you say it. And that's why I think that in the worst case or the best case, I don't know how to look at it, it's going to be uh, twice a second because it's like it will wait for 500 milliseconds until you have something to give them before it's like going back and saying well this broker has absolutely nothing i i don't have anything go back okay okay which gets us to actually i think you sort of just explained it but i want to i want to come through the front door uh what happens when you are reading uh when you're doing a consume request so and but and by the way so the questions i'm asking for the interests of full transparency, I am not pretending to not know. There are a few things in the in the pathway here in consuming that have always bothered me that I don't quite know how they work. And they've been those things that are like ridiculous, like you should totally know this. And I've never just stopped and read or asked somebody. So now is my chance in front of literally thousands of listeners. Um to get so, this straightened out. So everybody, to be thank fair, you. to read sometimes mean reading the code. I mean, I yeah, don't right. think we've done an amazing job about documenting all those nooks and crannies. Sure. So um, when a client is consuming, it calls poll. So it, it has subscribed and during subscribe, all of the connection pool stuff is going to happen and it's going to get all the, the metadata and the, the connections sorted out, right? Yes. Yeah, so okay. that, those parts are very, very similar to how send works. Okay. Uh, the, the interesting things, and consuming is actually a lot harder than producing, and I don't know if we'll be able to fit all of it here because there are consumer groups, and you may need to work through establishing a group and what partitions do you actually get to consume from. 
So, and then the consumer itself is pretty f- smart about pre-reading data from the broker to kind of speed things up, but not committing it until the client, like the user thread actually got them. So the, cl- the consumer itself does quite a bit of caching for you. And okay. I think a lot of people, A, don't know about it and B, are really afraid that they will lose data once they find out. But we're actually pretty smart about it and we don't lose data. Even if okay. you auto-commit, we do not lose data. We know exactly what you read and what you didn't read. Got it. So I think you're right in terms of time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're able to run just a little bit over here, but um, we might not be able to talk about the more interesting consumer group edge cases. But at least the call to poll, can you walk us through that? Yeah. So the call to poll is actually fake. It will sometimes read from the consumer cash. The consumer on the background thing will do fetches to Kafka. And really? I think it's this, maybe the same thread, but the things that you get back from Paul is not necessarily the things that we just read from Kafka right now. Got it. Uh, you may get back from Paul a single record. Oh, that's something that was a big gotcha in a recent, uh, we tried to do a performance test. And we're reading gigabytes, and we saw that we're only reading a record at a time, and records don't get that large. And how did it happen? We did poll limited to a single record, but on the back end, there's an optimization. Uh, The fetcher actually read basically, I think, something like megabyte or eight megabytes at a time. Uh, So we're incredibly surprised why these are low test reading all these data that we didn't expect. Right, we and, and small in such a performant way. <laughs> yes, we wanted small requests, but it was not a small request test because apparently you have to change the mass, max message size in order to um, make it small request. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so it basically the, the fetcher runs in the background and it will send a fetch request to Kafka, gets, gets to the request queue. And then there is some of the data that is ready to send back because all the it's the high watermark. We know that every in-sync replica got this data, so it's safe to send it back to the consumer. Uh, but if the data is only available on this broker, but not on other brokers, uh, then or there may be not a lot of data at all anyway, uh, then we cannot really give you a response because we want to be very consistent. If you consumed it once, we want to make sure you'll be able to consume it again if you end, happen to talk to a different broker. So we only allow, sometimes people think that the consumer is hanging where it's really the replication that's having trouble and we won't let you consume data that it's not replicated. Got it. So basically, if there is data that has been replicated, you'll be able to read it from either disk or fake disk and directly to the network through our zero copy mechanism. And you kind of get those really large uh, messages with all your data as a large stream of ev- uh, events, I'd say. Um, if we don't have enough data for you, then again, off to the purgatory you go until we have something. Got it. And in that case where you have consumed the message at the high watermark, which is to say the offset um, which is has been synced to all in sync followers is that, yep, is that exactly. how it's fine okay mm-hmm. good good uh so it's the offset that has been replicated to all of the followers that are in the in sync replica list um 
and I ask for that offset plus one, my my pull request is a is a is a basically a consume request for that offset. I come through the network stack and go to the request handler. Request handler says that's past the high water mark. In other words, you're in the future. You're asking for the next thing. You go to purgatory. Now the the client during this state is blocked on a socket. Is that correct? Um, would the client be blocked? So we actually, when you do a poll, you give kind of a timeout. Yeah, like a so second want, or something. Yeah, like so you won't get blocked any more than that. Sure, but you won't you won't get blocked for more than that. But you're not literally polling in the sense of serially oh, we, making no, no, the again, same request. No, no, again, we don't we don't do a wizard yet, or at least yeah. we have the minimum wait the minimum and maximum wait times to kind of govern how often do we do are we there yet yeah and are we there yet is on the order of like every second and within that second second, (laughs) your client thread is in fact efficiently blocked like the operating system will not schedule that or the jvm whatever you know wherever the that abstraction is being handled um that thread's not going to get scheduled because it's waiting on a response on a socket, basically. I um, don't know if we do blocking I.O. on the client. I'll actually be quite surprised if we do. We try to avoid blocking I.O. So we okay. probably free the thread, but so the, the broker doesn't send a response and we probably mm-hmm. have some code to handle that, but I'll be very, very surprised if we actually block the thread because sure. no, I don't mean you, may, in, you um, may have better things to do or something. No, no, I, I don't mean in the broker. So the broker, that just yeah. goes in purgatory. No, the, even, and the, you know, I don't remember, but I'll be very surprised if we do blocking on the client side. Maybe. Got it. Like, I'm, yeah. I, I don't actually remember. I know that we usually... A, try to reuse network code between the client and the server, and B, try to avoid blocking. So I'll be Try to avoid blocking, right, right, right. Yeah, so I'd be kind not. of surprised if we do it, but possibly. Like, I don't okay. actually remember mm-hmm. the behavior. Okay, because that's a, and, um, you know, let's follow up offline about that. Sorry, listeners, you won't know the answer. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get it later, and we'll put it in the show notes. We can um, kind of wait, tune in next time for the answer. For for <laughs> when we talk about cons- what happens with consumer groups. But yeah, uh, and that's that's a question I've got, like what's happening in the client? And, you know, to be fair, like you said, I have not read the code. When I'm polling, um, like what what's going on there? Uh, yeah, when let, let's talk. I can find an engineer who knows everything about it. And uh, yeah. Perfect. And that would be an outstanding... Uh, next episode, digging in to the consumer, what's happening there, and what are all the crazy edge cases with consumer groups, because these are some of my favorite episodes. I learn a lot. Yeah, I, I'd listen to that. Clearly, I have <laughs> well, still a lot to learn. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a, I think, a good measure of what that future content should be. Well, my guest today has been Gwen Shapira. Gwen, thanks for being my guest on Streaming Audio. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's been a pleasure as always. And there you have it. Before I go, I want to tell you that we have a pretty cool new offer to help you get started with Confluent Cloud without you having to pay for anything. If you're a new user and you go through the regular sign-up process and start using Confluent Cloud, your first $50 of usage per month are free. This will last for the first three months after you sign up. So that's $50 per month of serverless Kafka for three months at no cost to you. So. Go to the sign up link in the show notes. I don't want to read you the URL and sign up now. 
I think the only thing I could really do more is write your code for you. And I think we can both agree that's too much to ask. So check it out and hey, let us know how you like it. Anyway, as always, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. If you want to discuss it or ask a question, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Confluent Inc. or reach out to me at TL Berglund. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can hit us up in Community Slack. There's a sign-up link for that in the show notes as well. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast, which is a good thing. Thanks a lot for your support, and we'll see you next time.